0: We're in Acts uh, chapter 11, I'm sorry, verse 1 through 18. We're on page 919. Kathy's going to read for us here in a second. Again, Acts chapter 11, verse 1.
1: Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely. I observed animals, beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, were, sent to me from Caesarea, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your whole household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. May this word of the Lord Unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated.
0: Well, wow. That was a great story, wasn't it? I mean, that don't light your fire. Your wood's all wet. That is just awesome. That's why this church exists, is to help people build and develop a relationship with Jesus like that. And, uh, man, really cool. Uh, we are in a big chunk of Scripture today. Actually, what Kathy just read and what we read together, uh, at that first part of chapter 11, is a summary of chapter 10, And uh, chapter 10 and 11 is really kind of what we're looking at this morning. And I think the best way to start, actually, is to um, celebrate together something that that won't seem related at first, but I'll, I'll make a connection um, with uh, something that our church was able to participate in this uh, past weekend uh, down in Juarez, Mexico. So uh, some of you know that we've built a little bit of a relationship with the uh, Missions Ministries that's in Juarez, Mexico. They do home building, and so church groups from all over the country will come down and build houses and do different stuff like that, all in relationship with a number of local churches that are there that are led by uh, local people. And so we've built that relationship. We kind of... Uh, This is the second year where we'll build two houses, one in March. We'll build another one in October. We'll also send down a medical team to help with medical missions and some stuff like that. But towards the end of last year, we heard about an opportunity. And we were going through a building initiative, trying to raise money to be able to put a building on the land we own next door. And so we heard about one of the churches there that was starting a new church. And uh, the conditions are such in this particular part of uh, Juarez where uh, most people are living in pallet homes with kind of whatever supplies they can put together to be able to find a roof over their head. So it's not like you could start a new church and meet in someone's home. You really need a church building. And so uh, they came to us and said, hey, do you at all think you could maybe help us to, to purchase this piece of land so we could get started as it relates to building a church. And we said, well, gosh, we're going through the same kind of thing. Wouldn't it be cool if our Christmas offering this year went toward helping them purchase that land? And so uh, what we did is we took everything that was given that week before Christmas and we said all of that stuff is going to go into this Christmas offering. And with the portion uh, from that Christmas offering, we were able to not only buy the land, but we were able to pay to have built a church building and to be able to furnish it. And so, yeah, that's cool. So you all did that, you all gave that. And then this past weekend, we sent a team of people from our church down to actually do the construction and get to be there. I was on the team that was building a house in March and we went to the land and it was special to sit around that land and to pray. And to see the people in that community and to do prayer walks through that neighborhood and see the people whose lives will be touched by this church. And then this team got to come and got to build it. And so I want to just show you some pictures so that you can kind of celebrate together. Here's uh, some of our team and some of the local people there who are part of that church praying as they get started on the foundation. Uh, The building goes really fast. You know, it's not very long before they start kind of lifting up walls. Um, and all sorts of other you know stuff that goes on. This is, I got this text like three hours later after I got the first one. Somebody sent me this like, we're moving fast. And so it does move pretty fast. It's a lot of fun, good opportunity to flex muscles and do all sorts of great stuff. Uh, this is a, a picture from the second day once the interior had been, the drywall had been finished and you'll see a pulpit there and a cross. And actually one of the men from our church uh, built that Uh, built those two things and sent that down as a gift to them to be able to have that pulpit here's uh, what you see it looked like kind of towards the end of that second day and then here is a church service that they had that second night so the lights are on and here's this is an incredible picture so what you see here is that a full full house of of this church building and on the bottom left uh kind of the shiny head that's jimmy lau And Jimmy's one of our leaders and just a faithful member here at our church and uh, with him are the pastors of the Sending Church and then this new church plant and Jimmy is actually handing them the keys to the building and uh, everyone's celebrating together and so I just want to celebrate that and say thank you for your generosity, thank you for those of you that had a chance to go and be part of it, Um, this is the kind of stuff that I don't know if you know is happening all the time but it's really cool and really worth celebrating. Um, and, and it might kind of raise questions like, why do we do that kind of stuff? Why do we send teams down to build houses and to build churches? Why do we support mission work in the Middle East and in other parts of the world? Why, why do we do that? Right, there's, a, there's a kind of, even when you heard Juarez, Mexico, I know what some of you thought. Because my father-in-law from Ohio, he came down with us to do the house build trip in, in March. And he said when he told people... They said, uh, he said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to see my uh, grandkids, and we're going to take a trip to Mexico. And they said, oh, what? Cancun, Puerto Vallarta, where are you going? I'm going to Juarez. They're like, you know that's like the murder capital of like, the world, which might not even be true, but people think that. Why would you go there? Why would we go there? The reason is because of the kinds of things we read in Acts 10 and 11. Acts 10 and 11 is this moment in the book of Acts where the gospel goes global. That's why we titled today's sermon, Going Global. That's what happens in this passage. And Jesus said it would happen. He said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And it finally, in Acts 10 and 11, turns that corner. And now Gentiles, non-Jews, are welcomed into the family of God. That's why we're here. That's why we help start new churches locally. That's why we help start new churches and further kingdom work all over the world because of the kinds of things we read. Now, what we're going to see today is that as the gospel goes global, it is constantly challenging the status quo wherever it goes. It's stat- challenging the status quo of how we think. It's challenging the status quo of what we estimate to be important. Everywhere the gospel goes, it challenges the status quo, and so what I want to do here is I want to actually just kind of work our way. Uh, we'll go quickly, I, I hope, go <laughs> we'll quickly through chapter ten, and just make sure we really understand this story of what's happening. And then uh, I, I want to look at two particular things that the gospel challenges uh, that we're gonna that we see through this story. So a couple of things you need to see just based on background. Here, here's here's the big one, and here's a quote by John Stott. John Stott's a commentator and and a British pastor. Uh, now passed away, but here's what he wrote about this background. He said, it is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles, including even God-fearers on the other. He's saying, listen, there is a huge chasm between, between Jews and Gentiles, even the Gentiles who were God-fearers, those who believed in Yahweh, those who believed in Israel's God. He's saying there is a massive, massive gap. It's a cultural gap, it's a relational gap. These people did not like each other, they did not know each other, they did not get along. However divided you think people are today across whatever spectrum, it was worse in this time. He says not that the Old Testament itself countenanced such a divide. The Old Testament wasn't teaching it should be like this. The tragedy, this is such a fascinating sentence, the tragedy was that Israel twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism and became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions which kept them apart. Now, now, just a moment. Look at that 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 first line because I think this is interesting especially in a church like ours where we do believe in the doctrine of election we believe that God has set his love upon us before the foundation of the world that we love him because he first loved us and that can sometimes in an ugly way turn from god has shown love to me to god loves me more than anyone else Do you see that subtle thing And that's what happened in Israel and it created all sorts of this division he concludes, no Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. Now, the reason for this is that the Jews were not allowed to eat a number of foods that the Gentiles ate. That would have made them ceremonially, religiously unclean. And so they kind of extrapolated and said, well, if we can't eat it, we better just not even go in their house. There was no Old Testament command that said you can't go in their house. It's just they, they went that much step further. And so I just want to ask those of you who are followers of Jesus, is that kind of how you view non-Christians? Dogs? Dirty? Morally offensive? I don't want to be around them. I don't want my kids to be around them. I don't want to be near them. Yeah, 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 I, I guess I know God loves them, but, ugh. If that's your heart, this passage is going to challenge your status quo. So let's take a look at this story that we see. Uh, we begin in Caesarea, and I want to put up a map here, and we're going to leave this map up as we go through this story because I want you to have a sense of the geography of what's going on here. Uh, what you see in the bottom right is Jerusalem, up toward the top is Caesarea. And it says, in cha- go to chapter 10, Acts chapter 10. Sorry, I know we were reading 11. Go to Acts 10, chapter 10, verse 1. We begin. Up at the top in Caesarea. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A centurion is a, is a Roman officer, a Roman military officer oversaw a hundred people. That's what he's called, a centurion. Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius and he stared at him in terror wouldn't you (laughs) right and said what is it Lord and he said to him your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter he is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so, so this Gentile, this non-Jew, who's a Roman military officer, has this vision. And, and the angel says, hey, send to Joppa. Now you see Joppa just down the coast from Caesarea. It would have been about 30, 31 miles. Quite an extensive trip, especially with no vehicles. Right, you, They probably took horses. And so he gets his uh, soldier and his servants and he sends them off to Joppa. And then it says, verse nine, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so as the, the servants and the messengers from, from uh, Cornelius, as they're on their way, while they're on their way, as they're getting close to Joppa, it says in verse nine, Peter went up on the housetop, Peter's in Joppa, about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. Six hours of, like lunchtime, noontime. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. I've felt like that when I'm really hungry, but I don't, think that's what, I don't think that's what this is. This seems to be a more spiritual thing. He fell into a trance and saw the heavens open. Pay attention to what he sees. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. In other words, a mixture of animals that the Jews would have thought of as clean, and you could eat them, and unclean, you can't eat those. So that's all these different kinds of animals coming down on this sheet. Verse 13, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. All right, so you you get the picture? So Cornelius in Caesarea, he has a vision. Angel says, hey, go find this guy named Peter. Meanwhile, down in Joppa, Peter has a vision. He sees the sheet and it comes down with all these clean and unclean animals and the voice that says, rise, kill and eat. And he goes, I can't do that. I would never eat that stuff. I'm a good Jew. Jesus, don't you know that? And and this voice says to him, don't call common and unclean the things that I'm making clean. It's not your job to decide what's clean and unclean. Eat it. So these two visions, and so it says in verse 17, Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, right? And he saw it three times, three times that same vision happened. And he's thinking, what is this? What's going on? What what is this vision about? While this was happening, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Right? He's sitting there thinking... What's this dream about? What's this vision? I don't don't get it. Is is there a Peter here? (laughs) That got his attention. Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So God tells Peter, listen, these people are from me. I sent them here to you. And so verse 21, Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And uh, they tell him, hey, Cornelius, this guy that we serve, he had this dream. Uh, You know, they tell him about the vision. Uh, they, they want you to come. They want, verse 22, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man who's well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. So that's fascinating, verse 23. Peter already is starting to break down these cultural norms, right? He's saying, okay, come in and stay with me. That's a risky move because Jews and Gentiles didn't interact. They didn't stay together. Why was he willing to do it? Because God three times gave him a vision and told him, don't call these people unclean. So, middle of verse 23, the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So now they're back on the road from Joppa. They're back headed up to Caesarea. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. They're making good time here. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends, right? He's going, hey, this is, this is incredible. God has told me in an, in an angelic vision to go send for this guy, Peter. I got to get everyone I know to come hear this. And so the, he comes, the house is packed. It says, verse 25, when Peter entered, and again, Jews didn't enter the houses of Gentiles, especially Roman soldiers, ick. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Right, Cornelius is like, I don't know much, but this is the guy the angel told me I need, and he bows down. Peter, whoa, 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 whoa. Peter lifted him up, verse 26, saying, stand up, I too am a man. Don't worship me. And I'm not the one with the answers, I just point to that guy. Verse 27, and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. One commentator noticed how interesting it is that in this moment, whether wittingly or unwittingly, Peter... Uh, helps us avoid the two errors of how we treat people right one error is to worship people to take normal people and exalt them as if they're something greater than just what they are the other temptation is to treat them like dogs Peter says no no, no. you can't worship me don't treat me don't treat me like I'm a god and I'm not going to treat you like the rest of culture would like you're a dog really interesting so verses 30 to 33, Cornelius recaps, he just retells, here's what happened in the dream. And so Peter decides to talk. Verse 34, jump down there. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. So this is, this, get this, this is what Peter has come to say. What's the message? What's the thing that Cornelius and all these people have to hear? Here's what it is. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, Megan mentioned in her story, did you hear that, that the gospel is not advice? Hey, it's all this stuff you gotta do, why don't you do this, why don't you try that? Right, Peter doesn't come here with a bunch of advice, he comes here with news, good news. Verse 37, you yourselves know But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then look at what happens, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Now, now, here's why that's so important. Because in the book of Acts, what we've seen up to this point is that the Holy Spirit tends to fall in different ways at different times. Right? In Acts chapter 2, what we saw was that these Jews were baptized, and after they were baptized, the Holy Spirit fell. We've seen other points, like with uh, the Apostle Paul when he's confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus and then he goes in with this guy Ananias and he receives the spirit when Ananias prays for him and then he's baptized. But here, before anyone is baptized and without anyone acting as a kind of intermediary, what happens? The spirit falls. Why? Why? Think about this, class. Why? so that it is absolutely clear that God's doing this. Get this, the gulf between Jew and Gentile was so vast, it was so wide, that if God didn't do this, A, it wouldn't have happened, and B, if it would have happened some other way, it would have left this sort of charge of, well, like, are you sure you saw it the right way? Is that really what happened? But instead, the Spirit falls on these people. It says, verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, just like the Jews experienced on Pentecost. Now the Gentiles experienced the same thing here. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days, the Spirit falls on these people. Peter says, this is clearly a work of God. Let's baptize them, not so they receive the Spirit, but as a sign of the Spirit they've received. And then they stay up there in Caesarea, it says, for a number of days, teaching them, training them, helping them get established in the faith. And then at the beginning of chapter 11, it says, now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem And so he goes from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Do you notice how it says, went up to Jerusalem? You're like, well, he didn't have Google Maps because it's clearly down. (laughs) The reason is, Jerusalem's the top. Jerusalem's the key, right? You always go up to Jerusalem. I just find that interesting. So I go up to Jerusalem, and they start facing these questions. Verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You went in their house? You had a meal? What? And then Peter recaps everything that happened. So there's our story. This is a huge turning point. This is a huge moment. There's so many interesting things, so many fascinating things that we could learn about God and about his word uh, from this passage. But I want to focus on two particular things that the the gospel challenges that we see in this. And and here's the thing. If you're a person who is not a follower of Christ or you're a person who's kind of skeptical of church or been hurt by church or been hurt by church people and a lot of you maybe is even thinking, why am I here? These are exactly the kind of people I don't like to be around. I feel very uncomfortable. Listen, here's here's what you need to see. The gospel is going to challenge two things that drive you nuts the most about the experiences you've had with church people. The gospel is going to challenge that church people always think they're better than you, and the gospel is going to challenge that church people always think that they're just so good. The gospel challenges that in both of these, uh, both of those things in this passage. So let's look at the first thing. The gospel first challenges our perceived goodness. The gospel challenges our perceived goodness. We think we're good. We think, well, even if I'm not great, I'm better than a bunch of people. Right? If you just, if you go around, I mean, I've done this when I've done evangelism things and a lot of stuff, and you just ask someone, hey, if you were to die right now, how sure you think you'd go to heaven? And most people say, ah. Uh, 70, 80 percent? And I've never had someone go, zero. Unless they say zero, because there is no heaven. Okay, that's fine. If you believe there's heaven, and you ask that question, people go, ah, 70, 80 percent. And you go, well, why would God allow you to go into the kingdom of God? And, And they'll typically say something like, well, because, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I haven't killed anyone. Boy, don't raise that bar too high, right? Like... But, I, you know, I try to help people and, I, you know, I, I, I give money when I can and, I, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Like that's just, and I'm not trying to ridicule that, that's just how almost everybody thinks, right? And every world religion is an attempt to try to just be good enough so that we kind of, our good deeds outweigh our bad and God kind of accepts us, right? And, and here's what you need to know. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus Christ challenges that. It challenges our sense of goodness. And we see it in particular with Cornelius. Notice the description of Cornelius in chapter 10, beginning in verse 2. Look at at Cornelius. He is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God a devout man he he has some sort of devotion and it's not just him personally but he's actually leading his whole household in that direction he's giving alms he's giving of his resources sacrificially right Jesus said where your treasure is there your heart will be also right and so if you're giving that means your heart's kind of in this and Luke, in, this, in his description of this, actually uses, he doesn't describe anyone else this way in the whole book of Acts, a person who prayed continually to God. And then he has a vision, and uh, the angel says, we've noticed your prayers and your alms. We've seen what you've done. Now, now here's what's fascinating. The angel doesn't say, there's two things the angel doesn't say. The first thing is the angel doesn't say, hey, Cornelius, you've showed up on our God radar and you have, congratulations, you have given enough and you've prayed enough and we now, you've crossed the line, you're in. He doesn't say that. Why? Because it doesn't work like that. The angel doesn't say, congratulations, Cornelius, you made it. You're good enough now. No, he says, he says, go find Peter because he has something he has to tell you. You There's some news you need to hear. It's not advice about what you've done. It's news about what God has done. So the angel doesn't say, hey, congrats, you've made it. Notice the angel also doesn't preach the gospel to him directly. Right, The angel could have said, hey, Cornelius, you know what? It's great that you've done all this giving. It's great that you've done all this praying. But you need to know, there's this guy, Jesus. He did signs and wonders. He taught the people. He was crucified on a tree. God raised him from the dead. Believe in him and you'll have forgiveness. The angel could have said all that, right? Right? Why didn't he? Because God works through people sharing the gospel. Cornelius needed... The gospel, look at what the gospel description, gospel summary in verses 42 and 43 of Acts chapter 10. Cornelius apparently needed this. No matter how devout he was, no matter how much he had given, no matter how much he prayed, he needed verses 42 and 43 to be said to him. Here's what Peter says. And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Listen up, Cornelius, Peter's saying. Jesus is gonna be the judge of the living and the dead. And lest you think that he is gonna go, yeah, you've made it, Look at verse 43. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Listen, if Cornelius needed the gospel, everybody does. You don't get better as a non Christian. Or as a Christian than Cornelius, right? He is just as good as it gets. He's devoted, he's giving, he's praying and that's not good enough. Listen, Cornelius was a nice person but he wasn't a new person and he needed the forgiveness of his sins through Jesus. He needed his sins to be forgiven because no matter how much good you do, it does not wipe away the sin you've committed. Only the blood of Jesus can do that. And so the gospel challenges our perceived goodness. Now, here's the thing. Some of you, the way you try to avoid Jesus is by being really, really bad. You go, ah, oh, this church stuff, it just, I don't get it. I, I, don't like, I don't like Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. I'm going to do what I want, and you go be really bad. Do you know the other way to avoid Jesus? It's to be really, really good. Because if you're really good, then you kind of don't have to deal with Jesus. You go, yeah, 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 maybe, maybe the really bad people need him, but I'm, I'm good. Do you see that both are ways of avoiding Jesus? Here's what John Gerstner, he's a seminary professor, he said this, I love this quote. He says, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Let that sink in. Are your sins between you and God? Absolutely. You need forgiveness of sins. Even Cornelius did. But the main thing that keeps you from thinking you need that are your damnable good works. All the good things, all the alms you give, all the prayers you pray, all the devotion you think you have. That actually makes you think, I'm pretty good. Instead of saying, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm blind. I'm dead. I need life through Jesus. The gospel challenges our perceived goodness. And similarly, the gospel challenges our perceived superiority. And this just makes sense, right? If you think that uh, you are right with God because you're good, then you will necessarily feel superior to all the people who aren't as good, right? And you'll look down your nose at them. You go, know, well, if people were more like me, then I could like them, but they're not like me, so I don't, right? And, and that's superiority. The gospel challenges that. The gospel challenges it first in Peter. As I was reading and studying this, uh, one commentator made a fascinating, uh, he, just a little fascinating one line there. He said, this chapter, yeah, it's about the, the conversion of Cornelius, but it's as much about the conversion of Peter Why? Because Peter, even though he knew the good news of the gospel, even though he knew that we are forgiven only by trusting in Jesus, he knew that. He could preach that. But there was still something in him, all the cultural baggage that he was bringing into his faith that made it where he thought he was superior to all these people. Well, Lord, I can't be around that. I, I, I've a, I'm a good Jew. I, I don't eat that stuff. I can't be there. You know I can't associate with you. That's superiority. The gospel confronts that. And, and it's fascinating because Peter, when you look at his little message, look at his message starting in verses 34 and 35. You see that Peter knew in his head that the gospel was for all people. Look at verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly understand that God shows no partiality. This thing's available to every nation. That wasn't new information for Peter. He knew that. He says in verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Right? Peter had the Old Testament scriptures to say it's not just for Jews, it's for everyone. Peter knew that this was for everyone, but he didn't really know it. And there's actually an interesting word in verse 34. In verse 34, the word, translate, the word that, that English is truly I understand is a word that means literally to be seized by or gripped by. Right, there's other words to describe kind of mental cognition. He says truly I've been gripped by. Truly I've been seized by this reality that, that God shows no partiality. Right? There's a difference between knowing about something and knowing it. Right? Like I, you know, when we had uh, two kids, I would laugh when I'd watch Jim Gaffigan. Some of you know Jim Gaffigan. He's a great comedian, really funny. And uh, he talks about, you know, he has all these kids in New York City. He says, if you want to know what it's like to have a fourth kid, imagine that you're drowning and then someone holds you, hands you a baby. Right? That's what it's like to have four kids, right? And I could watch that and I could laugh at that. and I go, yeah, that's great. And now I have four kids. <laughs> And I've been seized by that reality, that he's exactly right. right. There's a difference between knowing about it and knowing it. And God had to do these uh, what one commentator called these hammer blows, these four hammer blows against Peter to sink this in his head. Because he knew it. He knew, yeah, this is for everybody, but the way he was functionally operating was, I'm superior to you, Gentiles. You're unclean. I'm clean, I'm good. You're unclean, you're dirty. And God had to pound this in his head. And he pounds it in his head through the vision that Peter has. He pounds it in his head through God's command to go with the men, the third hammer blow. He pounds it in his head through learning that God had actually spoken to Cornelius too. He pounds it in his head by seeing the spirit fall in the Gentiles. Right? God has to over and over and over And over, show Peter, hey, 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 the gospel means you're not superior to anybody. You're even, you're level at the foot of the cross. And Peter's not the only one that has to hear it. Apparently the church did too. Isn't it fascinating when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, did you notice the question that the church asked? The question that Luke records at the beginning of chapter 11 that the church asks, when, when he gets back there, and, and in verse 3, uh, it's described, uh, the, the circumcision party, party asked this, every other English translation says the circumcised believers, because there wouldn't have been a, every believer would have been circumcised. There wasn't a circumcision party, in that sounds like a lousy party. Anyway, but... <laughs> But that that probably, and you have a footnote there, those of the circumcision. So all the Jews, when he gets back to Jerusalem, what do the Jews ask? Whoa, what was it like when the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles? Whoa, can you believe that God is not just in our camp, but he's all over the world? Peter, what was it like when you heard, is that what they ask? What do they ask? They don't even ask, why did you baptize them? Do you notice what they ask? Verse three. They're in a question. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You ate with them. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. God can forgive their sin. Cool. The Gentiles are in. But you ate with them. Oh, God can give them the Spirit. That's incredible. But you actually had a relationship. You talk to them? Really? Listen. Do you know what the the phrase that kept coming in my mind as I was reading this? And as I think about the sad history that the church has for thousands of years we've struggled to get this, the phrase that kept popping in my head was separate but equal. You know that phrase? Part of segregation and Jim Crow South, separate but equal. You know what? (laughs) We were separate. But equal yeah we're equal we're equal we're equal yeah yeah we're all the same but but let's keep it separate that is evil and demonic and wrong and the reason is because god shows no partiality the gospel says everyone's a sinner, everyone needs grace. Listen, the the, the religion, the mentality that we just come into is that I am good if I do good works, I am good if I come from a particular heritage or background, that elevates me, that gives me prestige. The gospel chops that at the legs and says, no, 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 there is no one good, no, not one. And you can only be made righteous with God through faith in the one man who was good, Jesus. And so if we continue to have this superiority, it's evil. And and the church is going to keep battling this and keep battling this. In fact, there's a place in Galatians 2 where the Apostle Paul recounts how Peter even relapsed on this. He writes this in Galatians 2.14. But when I saw that, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. See, what had happened was Peter, also goes by the name Cephas. He had been eating with all the Gentiles in Antioch and then he started to withdraw because all these Jews are like, you ate with them. So he starts to pull away. And Peter, I'm sorry, Paul comes to him and says, I see that your actions are not in line with the truth of the gospel, Peter. Stop that. Repent. Now here's a fascinating thing. Do you see that? Our horizontal relationships where one person or one group or one class is esteemed as better than others, that kind of superiority, do you see that that's a gospel issue? See, I, there are other congregations within redemption that are much more vocal about social issues than we are, but, but I know that there's times where me and our, some of our other pastors are more vocal about social justice kinds of issues than some of you are comfortable with. And sometimes, occasionally, people will say, I, Gosh, I'm getting nervous about this. We're, we're getting into all this social justice stuff. Like, can we just preach the gospel? And I, I, listen, I get that concern because churches have, in many cases, abandoned the good news of Jesus and just cared about social stuff. So I, I get why that's a critique. But do you see the gospel is a social issue? right if if we go well separate but equal that's a gospel issue we say well i don't know i don't black lives matter really don't all lives matter that's a gospel issue Because we're trying to make these distinctions. We're trying to elevate these things. And we say, well, I'm not comfortable with older people. Or I'm not comfortable with younger people. Or I'm not comfortable with people that are, you know, in that style or millennials. Like, give me the willies. and, And, you know, poor people. And I don't ever shop at that place and this place. And, like, those are gospel issues. Why? Because God shows no partiality. You see how the gospel challenges your sense of goodness? You're not good enough. If Cornelius wasn't good enough to get to God without Jesus, you're not either. You need Jesus. And to the degree that you feel superior to other people, that's a gospel issue. You're forgetting the gospel. And you need to repent. And you need to thank Jesus that he forgives you for those kinds of sins too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for this turning point we read here in the book of Acts. God, thank you for the opportunity to be among these Gentiles who are included in your family. God, I pray that uh, we would continue to have a heart that goes to the nations that wants to see men and women and students and kids meet Jesus and find forgiveness of sins in his name. God, I also pray that you would give us uh, love for our neighbors, that we would, uh, as Christians especially, humbly lead the way, moving toward people who are different from us because of the power you give us in the gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Luke.